1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by the best-selling author and artificial intelligence expert, Martin Ford, to tackle the rather terrifying question, will robots rule the world? A self-described futurist and successful Silicon Valley software entrepreneur, Ford's latest book, Rule of the Robots, looks to a near future in which artificial intelligence is deeply embedded in our lives and explores the good, the bad and the ugly of what that will mean for us all. So welcome, Martin. And uh, okay, first of all, for those of us who are uninitiated, what's really new here? Computers have been getting smarter for some time after all.
0: Right. In the last decade or so, we've seen really extraordinary progress in artificial intelligence. Really, what we're building are machines that, in a limited, narrow sense, are beginning to think. Um, we're definitely not talking about you know science fiction, artificial intelligence, where machines are at human level uh, or, or really thinking of their own volition, but they are able to take on very specific cognitive tasks, and they're able to do that with extraordinary effectiveness, You know, in, in many cases, outperforming people. Um, And this is something that is going to be applied to just about everywhere across our whole economy and society. So I think it is going to be just an enormous disruption going forward.
1: And if we look under the bonnet, if that's the right metaphor, um, uh, what what you're saying has sort of changed this is a coming together of big data, which is something our readers and listeners will have um, heard of probably because it keeps popping up, but also something called a deep neural network. Could you maybe fill us in on what that is?
0: Right. So it's actually three things. As you said, it's the availability of, availability of lots of data together with the fact that computers have gotten dramatically faster. You know, we've had war's law going on now for, for decades. And what it means is that we've now got computers that are almost science fiction compared to, you know, 20 years ago or something. So we finally got the tools to to really make AI happen. And then the third thing, as you say, is this extraordinary uh progress in artificial neural networks or what's called deep learning and basically this is a way of designing a system so that at kind of a very rough rudimentary level it sort of mirrors what happens in the human brains in the way in 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 terms of the way that neurons are connected Um, so it's not anything like a human brain but it's a much simpler version of that sort of a scheme that's being used here um, and this is an idea that has been around since you know the late 1940s. So it's actually not a, a brand new idea in and of itself, but there have been some, some recent developments uh, in that. But again, it's primarily the fact that now there's so much data and the computers are so fast, and we're now able to build much larger, powerful versions of these networks than ever would have been possible before. And that is what is driving some of the extraordinary progress that people are familiar with. Um, You could talk to Amazon Alexa and and have a rudimentary conversation. You've got uh, self-driving cars from Waymo and and from Tesla and so forth. And this is the the fundamental technology that is really powering all those things. You know, you can go to Google and get a workable translation between languages, um, you know, for hundreds of languages. Um, And again, that's neural networks that's, that's making that possible. So this has really become a a very powerful and scalable technology.
1: It's interesting. Oh, yeah, the, 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 I think the, the language translation one is a particularly uh, good example. I remember trying to do that five years ago and it not working very well. I remember doing it one year ago and it worked absolutely superbly and just seeing that progress in those For years, um, uh, you say that this idea of the neural networks goes right back, and then it kind of fell out of fashion, and then it and then it came back into fashion. Was it just the computer power that meant that this nice idea then suddenly was worth um, or operationable?
0: Yeah, probably the the main factors were that computers weren't fast enough, and there wasn't enough data. I mean, you imagine back in the nineteen eighties, you know, we didn't have anything like the amount of data we have. It's it's grown just. You know, exponentially since then. So there would not have been the re- the resource to train these networks, even if you could have really built them on on computers that were fast enough. Uh, so those are the primary things that have changed. Of course, there has been also more research into that field, and, and it has advanced as well. Uh, we just finally got to a moment in time where everything kind of came together that allowed this technology to to really work.
1: And so they they really do. It's right to think of them as learning in the way that a toddler learns how to speak or whatever. Is that is that the right? Is
0: that- yes. I mean, they, they are they are machine learning algorithms. That's what that's what's happening. They're looking at at data and learning from it. Now, these systems do that again in a very, very narrow, rudimentary way and with limitations that, you know, e- even a toddler is is still far more advanced, certainly than than these um, algorithms that we have, you know, for example, if you want to train um, an algorithm to recognize objects, you need thousands and thousands of photographs, right, and you, to train um, an algorithm, you know, to, to recognize a dog and a cat and a car, for example, um, whereas a toddler, you you know, it might only take two or three, you know, instances you point out, you know, there's a cat, I mean, it might only take once and, 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 and the child will remember exactly what that is and be able to recognize it in the future, right? So uh, we're still definitely not at the level of human learning ability, but in very narrow specific applications, these are very powerful uh, algorithms.
1: So, I mean, if we take a context like chess, something else I was editing earlier on today, someone was saying, obviously chess for what, 25 years now, computers have been able to beat the best players, but this guy was saying, well, yeah, but like chess, a uh, computer together with chess player will beat just um, AI. If you see what I mean? If you've got human judgment in there as well, even chess, which isn't as complicated as the real world, is complicated enough that um, human judgment can still be useful in refining it. Do you think that's true? And if it is true, does it apply in lots of other contexts still as well?
0: Right. I, I don't think that's really been tested, but I kind of doubt that it's true now. And the big thing that happened in the field of chess is that up until a few years ago, you had dedicated chess playing uh, software that, you know, is very powerful. And, and as you say, people would use this software um, in teams. And, and it turned out that people working with the software could beat the software by itself. Um, although, you know, no individual human being could could beat the software. But what happened uh, just a couple of years ago is that DeepMind there in London came up with a system called AlphaZero. Um, which which was based on its original alpha go, which was the system that wanted you know famously wanted at the game of go, but this was a system that could start from scratch and could could learn to play chess as well as um some other games and it was rapidly able to basically through a machine learning process could beat any of the the other existing you know dedicated software systems so uh, I think it's pretty widely recognized right now that Alpha Zero is is the premier chess playing entity in, in the known universe, basically. Um, so I, I personally suspect that even a team working with uh, other software wouldn't be able to beat AlphaZero. So, I think uh, probably the machines have have triumphed in that arena too now, but that is a very rule
1: bound and you know we we know that chess has lots and lots of uh, combinations that are possible, but you know you could still tot up like w- with enough zeros, like the number of ways that the board can be um, arranged, whereas of course, real life is more complicated and um, whereas the translation example we were talking about before really has rocketed within as I say the last five years in my limited experience um examples uh like driving is the example that keeps being the thing that is going to be a couple of years um down the road it seems to me or are the trucks now actually driving themselves i remember in my previous job now six seven years ago we were saying in a year or two's time we might see convoys of lorries with one human driver at the front or something and the others in tow and it's certainly not something i've seen here yet
0: right so as you mentioned, a game like chess is what's called an information complete game in the sense that all the information that you need to know to win the game is there on the chessboard, right? There there aren't any other hidden variables or things that you can't perceive or things that might happen completely unpredictably on the chessboard. It's all right there in front of you. Same thing with Go. So this is the area where the, the machines have really, really triumphed, okay? And, and we probably can say at this point, when when it comes to an information complete game like that, that, that the computers are going to win every time um, that battle between people and machine is probably over. Uh, the next frontier is the areas where the information isn't isn't all there, where there are things that you can't perceive right away, things that might be hidden from you. And most importantly, where the environment is unpredictable, where things are co- completely unexpected can happen. And that's what happens when you get out into the real world. And so that's the biggest challenge for practical AI. And so what it means going forward is that the extent to which the environment is unpredictable is going to be the factor that determines how much progress we see. So to give two examples, think about the inside of an Amazon warehouse where they have lots of robots, but this is a very controlled environment. I mean, Amazon can arrange things however it wants in that warehouse. It can keep the robots separate from the people so that there are no accidents or collisions. Um, it can route the orders to the robots and to the people any way it wants. So it has a lot of control, not perfect control, but a great deal of control. So we're going to see uh, robotics and artificial intelligence really, I think, leaping forward in environments like that because it's very controlled and because you can work around any problems and minimize you know, risks and errors then the next stage is something like a self-driving car out on a public road. And there you really have absolutely no control over the environment. You know, there is nothing to stop a pedestrian from walking right in front of you. Um, There is nothing to stop uh, road construction being, you know, happening at some point on your route. Um, There's nothing to stop inclement weather, you know. Um, So these factors are all completely out of your control. And this is why we're seeing slower progress in, self-driving cars than many people predicted even just five years ago. It's taking longer than people expected to solve this problem. And the reason is that, you know, you could build a self-driving car and we could probably build one now that's 99%, you know, perfect, right? It only has a 1% error rate, but that would be, you know, worse than not, worse than nothing because, because if you had lots of these cars out on the road, and they were failing one percent of the time. I mean, that would be an enormous number of incidents. Some of which would probably result in death, right? And we've seen that. We've seen that already. There have been accidents with with Tesla's system, uh, and so forth. And one with uh, Uber's self-driving car in Arizona. So, I still think it's going to be a while before we see uh, really functional self-driving cars that can do. What an Uber can do, where you can just get in the car and it will take you anywhere you want. I mean, that's still a long way off, I think. And the reason is that the environment they're operating in is just so unpredictable. And there are so many things that can go wrong.
1: The stakes, the stakes as you say, are high with a, with a car crash. But um, if we bring it in a slightly lighter note, within the home, people who have been watching um, you know, either science or science programs on the television or science fiction films since, I don't know, the 50s or 60s have had this idea of a lovable little robot that follows you round the house. You set them a test uh, in Rule of the Robots about whether or not they could go and fetch you a cold beer from the fridge. And you say that actually is a test that could be in this uncontrolled environment of the home a lot harder to pass than you might think.
0: Yeah, I mean, a, a machine that can do that is also, I think, um, a fair distance in the future. And the reason is the same thing, that the home is very unpredictable. Um, you know, you think of all the objects that could be inside a home. I, I mean, a robot would have to recognize those objects and, and know what to do with them. So there's a lot of difficulty in understanding it. There's difficulty in, in navigating the environment. Um, and there's mostly, you know, the thing that really holds back uh, many of the advances in, in practical robots is really a need for dexterity, right? As a human being, you have actually an extraordinary um, amount of dexterity, this ability to to use hand-eye coordination, visual perception, and then reach out and touch, grasp an object, and manipulate your environment. I mean, a human being is incredibly good at that. We're really good biological robots. Uh, to build a, a home robot that can replicate that, and, and you know, and let's face it, this is probably going to be an expensive machine. It's going to cost probably thousands of dollars. So people aren't going to buy it unless it can do useful things. And and in order to do that, it would have to approach human capability in terms of this. And that's a long way off. Um, But as you say, just thinking in terms of getting that beer from the, from the fridge, you know, the robot would have to navigate to the refrigerator. Okay. That may be not too difficult, but then it's got to open the door. And in order to open a fridge door, you've got to be quite heavy and powerful. I mean, it's not something a little toy would be able to do, right? The toy would just tip over. So it's got to be quite a heavy, Robot, which means it's quite expensive. Then, once it's got the door open, it's got to be able to perceive what's inside the fridge um, and find the beer, and then reach in and and grab what it's looking for. And all of that requires an extraordinary amount of, of dexterity, and we're we're definitely not at that level yet. So, uh, for for again, for the foreseeable future, I think where we're really going to see robots having a big impact is somewhere like that Amazon warehouse. And the reason is in that warehouse, it is, it is economically feasible and it makes sense to just arrange everything really carefully so that the robot knows where to find things, for example. Um, And to get around a lot of that unpredictability, you wouldn't want to, you know, rearrange everything super carefully inside your fridge every day, just so that the robot could retrieve the items. It wouldn't be worth your while, but it is worth doing that in an Amazon warehouse. So that's, why we're going to see these advances mostly happening in environments that are relatively predictable.
1: I see, yeah. I mean, you've got this nice comparison with the idea of a a kind of utility um, and you talk back to the gap between, was it Michael Faraday and uh, the Edison light bulb. Um, So um, uh, when do you think we got the kind of Faraday moment? I imagine that's already happened with the Maybe with Kasparov being defeated by the chess computer or something, and then and, and, and then when do you think we'll get the Edison moment?
0: Yeah, I think those moments have occurred already. Um I mean even when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, it took, you know, a number, you know, many years before electrification became widespread, right? I when he invented the light bulb, they were just starting to think about building power stations, right? And 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 bringing basic electrical power to to regions. So and we should say um, that was a
1: good 100 years or a bit more than 100 years wasn't it after the faraday experiments I think.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it took it took a long time before um like you know electricity was really just kind of a, an amusement in the beginning, you know, people were they used it for tricks and things like this and and, and but to actually make it practical and to use it took um at least 100 years, yeah. So we're well beyond that in terms of artificial intelligence. And one of the important differences with electricity is that a lot of the infrastructure that we need to make AI into something like utility is already here, right? We've already got computers and the internet and we've got these huge uh, cloud computing facilities owned by companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon. All of that represents kind of the the infrastructure, the the electric poles and the electric lines and the power stations that had to be built to make electricity into um, a utility. To some extent, already exists for artificial intelligence. Um, so it's going to happen faster than electricity happened. Um, it's already, you know, rolling out now, and it, it is truly turning into a systemic technology. You know, a technology that is going to reach into every aspect of our lives, every sector of the economy, every industry is is being impacted by artificial intelligence, and that will only be more true in the future. And um,
1: your last book was really mostly, as I understand it, about jobs. The new book has got a chapter on jobs. Just in the gap between the two, have you seen the prospect of different types of work uh, like start to hove into the view of the robots?
0: Right. So definitely we see that the, the technology continue to advance. Um, it is still the case, as, as I was saying earlier, when we were talking about robots the key thing here is, uh, is the work predictable? You know, are you coming to work and doing the same kinds of things again and again? Not necessarily rote repetitive, like exactly standing on an assembly line, but do you face the same basic sorts of challenges again and again so that if there is data that encapsulates the kind of work that's being done, could a machine learning algorithm churn through that data and, and essentially figure out how to do that work? And anything like that, Any work of that nature is going to be highly susceptible to automation going forward. And that includes both uh, manipulative work, you know, what we'd call blue-collar work, where you're physically working with your environment. Uh, And that, of course, would require a robot. But it also includes a whole range of white-collar occupations, um, knowledge work, where you're sitting in front of a computer, manipulating information, uh, often in some relatively routine way. Um, and we're beginning to see, you know, huge uh, encroachment there. We already have, for example, smart algorithms that can write basic news stories that can do journalism, right? Some of the largest media organizations are using these. They can look at data and figure out what's the interesting story within this data and then generate an article from that. And, you you know, people would read those articles and not be able to tell that it was written by a machine and not a journalist. Uh, many other fields are being impacted. Legal uh systems are, are beginning to have an important impact to review documents, to analyze contracts, uh, to make legal predictions, things like this. Uh, in the field of medicine, we see some systems that can do a better job in some cases of reading medical images like a mammogram or an X-ray. And for example, determining whether or not there's cancer there. Um, in some cases the AI can outperform doctors. So we're, we're clearly, um, I think approaching a world where almost any kind of routine knowledge work, um, anyone that's sitting in front of a computer, cranking out the same report again and again, or the same analysis, all of that is going to be highly susceptible to to automation. So it's a very broad-based impact, and it definitely is not something that is just limited to lower skilled people or people that don't have a university degree and so forth. You know, m- Many more educated people are definitely going to be heavily impacted by this as well so
1: so then we get to the first of these several kind of disruptive uh, and maybe difficult implications because implicit in that is a good and a bad thing isn't it first of all like potentially people aren't doing essentially routine things maybe they could do something creative um, instead but in the meantime you've got a hell of a lot to navigate haven't you because someone who's thinking I was doing perfectly well as a um, as a lawyer, like you know, doing the conveyancing for selling houses or something, and that's suddenly become routinized, um, uh, is uh, potentially out of a out of an income.
0: Right. So there are two sides. In general, when we say if artificial intelligence and robotics can make everything more efficient, so that we can produce more cheaply of everything that we want, whether it's goods or services, then that's certainly a good thing, right? Because because that can make everyone. More prosperous. That can help us address poverty, right? By making the essential items that everyone needs uh, more affordable. Um, artificial intelligence is also going to play an incredibly important role in scientific research and development, so it will have new products that we otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, we already see it, for example, being applied to drug discovery—you know, dis- discovering new medicines, um, things like this. So it's definitely a very powerful technology that can make us better off, but one of the dangers associated with it is that it's going to impact the distribution of income and make things even more unequal because a lot of people risk leaving you know risk getting left behind basically uh you know some people many people hopefully will be able to transition they they will lose that routine job and maybe they will be able to take on more creative work that can't be automated or maybe they'll be able to take on a job that in that involves uh very deep interaction with people, you know, relationship building, which is another thing that uh, artificial intelligence so far is not so good at. But I do think that there are going to be a, a fair number of people that are going to struggle to make that transition, right? Because sometimes those types of different roles require talents, capabilities, uh, personality traits that that not everyone has, right? So, So not everyone can become a robotics engineer. Not everyone can become some deeply pe- people oriented uh you know occupation. So there is a risk a lot of people were left behind. So I do think we need to have a better social safety net, um, maybe a new social contract to to allow for that possibility. And that's the reason I talk a lot about a universal basic income as one approach that might might be effective there to ensure that people at least do not lose their income and you know end up not being able to sustain themselves. And also the other issue is that we want people to participate in the economy, right? We need consumers out there to come buy all the products and services being uh, produced. We we don't want the level of economic inequality to become so extreme that there literally aren't enough people out there to buy all the things being produced.
1: But you worry as well, um, separate from the, obviously important point you make there about making sure people have got uh, enough money and a decent standard of living. just people feeling purposeless, you know particularly if you think of someone who's maybe older and worked in a particular occupation that's given them a certain status and then uh, then it just sort of goes
0: yeah, I mean definitely it is true that jobs uh, jobs are kind of a package a bundle and and one very very important thing that they provide of course, is an income, but they also provide other incredibly important things like you know a sense of belonging, a sense of doing something useful, um, something to occupy your your time, you know, maybe for many people, a sense of dignity. Uh, So in a world where jobs become less accessible to many people, we are going to have to find ways to provide that. Um, And I think that, you know, there are are certainly avenues for doing that. People can do many things that offer those, you know, that sense of belonging and self-worth that doesn't necessarily involve a traditional job. You can go and volunteer in the community and so forth. Um, so we'll have to look more at solutions like that. Um, I've also suggested that if we had someday a basic income, we might build some incentives into it so that you might be able to earn a somewhat higher income if you do productive things like go and study, be in school, or or maybe do something else like volunteer in the community and so forth. So I think there's a lot of space for innovation there in terms of coming up with ideas to address those concerns, But as, as
1: well as the kind of um, sort of uh, chronic disruption of society that you're proposing there, there's, or, or discussing there, there's, there's also several kind of acute ways in which it could flare up. Perhaps the most dramatic that you talk about in the book is around war, where if I've got you right, the big fear is not robots taking over in the sense that humans can no longer switch them off, but robots rather getting so damn good at what they're doing... That the humans who decline uh sorry the humans who do switch them off are going to be left behind by the humans who don't
0: right that's one of the concerns absolutely um you know the idea that the machines might become self aware and 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 you know truly intelligent and then maybe cause us harm is something that you've seen in a lot of movies like the Terminator movie and so forth um you can't dismiss that entirely. I mean, there are definitely people that worry about the the, the development of what's called super intelligence, where the machines will be basically beyond us. Um, you hear Elon Musk talking about that a lot, for example, and saying, you know, oh, artificial intelligence is more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Um, that's something that could definitely occur. I mean, you know, machines could at some point exceed us in capability. But it's probably at a, at the absolute minimum decades away, and it could be you know fifty, a hundred years away. So it's not something that's immediate. And there are some smart people worried about that issue and thinking about it. Uh, what's much more immediate is what people are going to do with this technology, right? Um, and you mentioned war. One of the one of the greatest concerns out there is is the advent of fully autonomous weapons, right? Weapons that um, are not you know, self-aware, not acting of their own volition, but are capable of targeting and, and attacking, killing people without any human being authorizing that. So you you've imagine um, swarms of drones that could attack people. Um, and this is really a terrifying scenario, not just because it could be used by militaries, but because it could potentially fall into the hands of terrorists, right? Once, once these technologies are developed. So there actually is an initiative in the United Nations now to, um, ban or prohibit these these fully autonomous weapons but that really isn't making a lot of progress because uh the US, China and Russia are all against banning them because basically because they don't trust each other right they understand that the development of these weapons would give a military enormous advantages so they're they're afraid of falling behind and seeing a competitor do that so we these these weapons are probably going to exist within you know a few years and uh It's really quite a terrifying scenario. There's a a YouTube video that people can watch called Slaughterbots that was put together by uh, Stuart Russell, who's a professor at uh, the University of California. And it shows very graphically how terrifying it could be if we had these autonomous weapons and they fell into the hands of of terrorists or rogue actors and so forth. So that's one really scary scenario. Um, And then there are many other things that we have to worry about with artificial intelligence. As you say, there is a potential de-skilling problem, whereas we rely more on the technology, uh, we will then lose the skills that we once had. And you see this in aviation, right? You see there there was a crash at uh, San Francisco airport a number of years ago that was blamed on a pilot having kind of lost his skills because most of the time pilots don't really fly the plane, right? it's usually the technology doing that. So that's that's certainly one thing that we need to worry about as these technologies become more advanced. Um, and then there are a whole range of other dangers as well.
1: In politics, you talk both about surveillance, maybe with a special eye on China, and then in systems more like the US, you worry about ultra-deep fakes. Why don't you say a word on each of those?
0: Right. Uh, surveillance, and especially... Facial recognition is becoming one of the most powerful and um, you know widespread applications of artificial intelligence, and China is especially you know really ad- advancing this technology. They've got a number of companies at the absolute forefront of this, um, and are really developing it rapidly. And the government, which is of course an authoritarian regime in China, has embraced this technology to build what you could really only call an Orwellian state, right? I mean, they are deploying it in particular against uh, the Uyghurs, right? The ethnic group that lives in, in Western China um, in really kind of chilling way, but they're also deploying it throughout the country. Um, and maybe more importantly, they're exporting it uh, to other countries, especially the Middle East, you know, the, the, especially countries like Saudi Arabia and uh, the United Arab Emirates and so forth are, are develop or embracing these technologies. So this kind of surveillance where machines are literally watching you all the time and can recognize you, know who you are, where you're going, what you're doing. And, and that can also be tied in with other systems in China. You see them also surveilling what consumer purchases you're, you're buying and, and uh, who you're associating with your posts on social media and putting that all together into a kind of a big... Uh, social rating system. So it's really quite terrifying in terms of how broad-based this could be. And I think that those of us who live in the West and in democratic countries are often going to have to make trade-offs with regard to these surveillance technologies, because they do offer a benefit in terms of reducing crime, in terms of uh, preventing terrorism, for example, at airports and so forth. Um, So there, there absolutely is a benefit to this technology. But we we all have to make a decision on how you know what trade off we want to make there, and how how much privacy do we want to be giving up in terms of having these systems watching us everywhere we go.
1: And then and then you, you also talk back in the in the West about the idea that you know you could have a let's say a Hillary Clinton type candidate where a robot sort of like done a very very impressive kind of um, mock up of her voice that's half the way around the world before people realise. It's a fake. So it can disrupt democratic politics, maybe as well as authoritarian politics. Um, uh, but like when you think about this, when you think about war, when you think about like the fact that, you know, technologies are just very hard to stop. You know, it's very h- hard to put an idea back in the bottle. Um, do you rem- like manage to stay optimistic and think in the end we'll harness this and it will be for the great to good of humanity or... Um, would you err on the side of fear?
0: I, I try to be optimistic. And I, I, you know, I do believe very strongly that artificial intelligence is not just a positive force. I think it's probably indispensable to us if we're going to meet the challenges that we're going to face in the future. Uh, because we, we've got some big problems ahead of us in the coming decades. And of course, one that looms especially large is climate change. Now, if you think about climate change, we need enormous amounts of innovation in order to address this problem, right? We need to come up with ways, of course, to reduce carbon emissions, and that means cleaner energy, but it also means innovation in many other areas. Uh, we need new ways to make cement. We need new approaches in agriculture um, and so forth. So we really need innovation across the board. And beyond that, we also are gonna have to figure out ways to adapt to climate change, right? So. Um, we've got, you know, we face water scarcity. I'm personally involved in a, a startup company um, that is used AI to some extent to make um, an atmospheric water generation system that can actually generate water from the air. So we need that kind of innovation to address the the implications of, of climate change as well. Uh, so we are going to need to rely on artificial intelligence if we're going to face these problems. So we can't afford to turn away from this technology just because it comes coupled with these dangers. Uh, what we have to do is recognize the risks that we face and address them. And that will require, require you know, various approaches. In, in the economic sphere, when we're talking about jobs, we may need to adopt new social contracts. You know, something like a basic income or, or better social safety net systems. Um, in other areas where we're worried about privacy, with with uh, facial recognition systems, where we're worried about weaponization, where we're worried about, as you said, how deep fakes could be used to make these incredibly um, high fidelity videos or audio that could deceive people, that could disrupt the political process. Um, we need regulation, right? And, and systems to help um, keep us safe from that. Uh, so there are a lot of, you know, tasks ahead of us in terms of making sure that this, Technology um, remains a safe and useful technology and making sure that it works on behalf of everyone.
1: Okay, well, on that note, where well we've got at least half a hope that it might all come out for the good, uh, we will draw strumps and say thank you very much to Martin, whose Rule of the Robots is out now. Thank you very much as well to all of you for listening. Our producer is Sarah Collins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.